You've got to think differently. I started menopause at 13. Now he's got a roaring boner. Just because you have some challenges doesn't mean you're not fabulous. The doctor walked in and he said, cross everything except your legs. The romance takes place in, the, in a Petri dish. The dusty old eggs. They're not genetically mine. But people forget that other people are really struggling. Choosing our donor. No one talks about it because they feel bad or they feel shame. I genuinely did not like kids. See, your sperm's great. My uterus is pretty good. It seems to be the semen that don't like to cooperate. Everyone, I'm pregnant! What if it's a question every fertility patient will ask themselves sometime or another on the journey? From monitoring to mix-ups, cancelled cycles, disaster planning, even keeping up with legislation and regulations. There is a lot going on behind the scenes that many patients aren't aware of. So I sat down with Fertility North's Kelly Pierce and Sarah Little to chat all things risk management. This episode is proudly brought to you by Fertility North. Celebrating 20 years of making dreams come alive, Fertility North is a specialist fertility, gynaecology and endometriosis treatment centre that also boasts one of Perth's most comprehensive donor programs. Fertility North has a world-class team of dedicated and highly experienced staff who take pride in offering patients a personalised and supported treatment experience, a wide range of cutting edge accredited treatment options and results which speak for themselves. All right, listeners, bringing you a little bit of a different one. As you heard in the intro, what if? It's a, it's a question many fertility patients will ask themselves and the, the answers to this are endless. What if there's a fire? What if I'm not responding to protocols? What if they mix up my stuff? Okay, so that's what we're going to get into today. I'm here with Kelly Pierce and Sarah Little from Fertility North. Thanks for coming on, team. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, I love your titles. Let's go through this first of all. Sarah Little, quality manager. Quality. We love that word in fertility, don't we? <laughs> don't we just. Yes, I've been quality manager here at Fertility North for almost 10 years. Um, I'm responsible for making sure we follow legislation, all our regulations, dealing with internal audits, external audits, doc review, you name it, it's me. It's you. <laughs> what a cool job though. It is. It's interesting. So day to day, tell me, what are you doing? Um, lots of doc review. We have SOPs that govern everything we do. An SOP is a standard operating procedure. So especially when it comes to the laboratory, we have to make sure everybody is consistent with what they do. So I make sure all those are reviewed regularly and keep everyone up to date with changes in legislation and in regulation. We are going to talk about legislation um, a little bit later, but first, Kelly, what um, what do you do? <laughs> I wear many hats. Um, I've worked in IVF for just over 25 years. Um, I'm currently the laboratory supervisor at Fertility North. Um, I've also been quality manager. I look after some compliance and I also do a bit of our social media and marketing. You do a bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, well, let's just dive straight in because when it comes to legislation, regulation, I'm not really across all the things that are happening in WA. I feel like nothing really changes much here, but you can tell me, Sarah, if we're, you know, if, if there's, is there a lot actually happening and changing in this world? Uh there hasn't been for a very long time. Uh, the HRT Act was brought into action in 1991. It's had a couple of minor reviews since then, but pretty much has stayed static. Um, we had a big review undertaken four years ago, I want to say now, by Professor Sonia Allen, um, and she put forward a big raft of recommendations which the government have 
pledge to act upon and the act is currently under review right now. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like we are a little bit delayed or behind when it comes to other states and what they're doing. It does feel like that. I mean, we were one of the first to have legislation that governed uh, IVF, but as I say, it kind of stagnated and seems like Australia and the rest of the world has overtaken us. So we've got a lot of catching up to do. Technology's moved on. Um, Social kind of situations have moved on. We've got the Marriage Equality Act now. Um, We need to move with the times. We need to reflect the society we live in now. Just to give listeners a bit of education then, what sort of legislation are we or regulations are we looking at in in WA or Perth that we can get into? What are things that we we do do differently, can do, can't do, changes, um, things that we want to change here? Uh, That's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question. Um, Especially when it comes to same-sex couples, we lag behind a lot. Um, Obviously, we've got same-sex couples that would like to both be involved in the conception of their child and WA legislation is very restrictive in that regard. Is it? Correct me if I'm wrong, can um, gay men have a child in WA? They can. They can. Um, but commercial surrogacy isn't permitted in Western Australia, so they have to find a surrogate who is prepared to lend their womb um, altruistically. Okay. So and that's not really happening that frequently then? But you're seeing them go over east and... Overseas. Overseas. That sucks because I feel like it should just be equal, you know, mm. across the board. Um, and, and so what else is happening in terms of regulation? Any other things that we would want to see change soon besides same-sex couples? Anything else that's, that's happening? I think up until now um, the legislation has been quite restrictive. It's always been there to stop us from doing things Um, and Sonia Allen's review really highlighted that. She um, engaged in feedback from anyone involved in the industry, be it um, scientists, clinicians, nurses, counsellors and patients Mm. Um, and the overwhelming opinion of, of the way that the Act is enacted in Western Australia is that they were the big fist stopping everyone from doing what they wanted to do. Um, so I think where we need to go from here is for it to be more of a supportive legislation rather than a prohibitive legislation. Does that...? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, our legislation is also quite restrictive when it comes to research in the IVF space. Um, there's lots that we can't do. So it would be nice to have some relaxation on that kind of side of things. What do they do? They deem it as unethical. Like, what's the what's the reason behind this? They've with donating your embryos to research, you have to consent to that before the embryos are even created. Um, and for many patients, um, that rule came into effect um, after they'd had their treatment. So lots of patients will have embryos left in storage. They don't want to throw them out. That's a waste. They're not comfortable donating them to another couple. So they want to donate it to the lab for training or research and they can't do that. The retrospectively, I didn't know this. Yeah. So I would yeah. check if I've ticked that little box. Correct. Yeah. But you don't know how you feel after you make them. No. 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 That's – yeah, that – how yeah. do you know? I'm all about it now. But at the mm. time you don't know they're worth their weight in gold, you know. No. Exactly. Um, so – and I see over in the US, this is me watching The Real Housewives, but mm. they actually can, they, they've got, oh, I've got three boy embryos and four girl embryos. We don't do that here. Is that a legislation thing? Yes, sex selection is not allowed. We can't use PGT 
for that purpose unless there is a genetic reason to do that. Do you think we'll ever, not saying that you're picking your gender, but you can just go, let's, oh, let's chuck a boy up there now. What are your thoughts on that? This is a personal opinion. Mm. Oh. The technology that you need to use to determine the, the genetic sex of a baby. Um, oh. Too invasive? Yeah, yeah, I think so. If you don't need to subject your embryos to the biopsy procedure, then um, I would err on the side of less is best. Yep. yep. Yeah, I would agree. Cool. What's been the biggest gripe or complaint or, or whinge you've had from, from patients or others in the industry around regulations? I think they've, the legislators have acted on some of the concerns that people have had. So the, um, the limit of the number of embryos you could have in storage before embarking on a fresh treatment cycle has been lifted. So up until fairly recently, if you had two or more embryos in storage, you had to use those before you could continue treatment. Um, but that placed significant limitations on patients undergoing pre-implantation genetic testing where you need to create multiple embryos to test them. Um, and I think the legislators got sick of dealing with paperwork for applications to waive that condition. Um, so that has now been removed. There used to also be a 15-year storage limit on gametes, so eggs and sperm, um, and after 15 years the patient had to apply to the RTC for that to be extended, and that no longer exists either. Mm -hmm. um, so you can store your eggs and sperm indefinitely. Um, there's still a 10-year storage limit on our embryos, but that helps us. It helps us to maintain contact with our patients so that when the storage limits come up, we are still in contact with them so we can find out what they want to do with their embryos if they want to extend the storage period, undertake more treatment mm -hmm. um, or look at the options of um, donating um, or removal from storage or mm -hmm. donat donating to lab research if they've consented to that at the time. With lots of women um, either you know, embarking on the solo journey, maybe they're going through a divorce, egg freezing is a big one. I've seen it also in my friendship group. Is there any regulations around egg freezing? Like do you... In, can you just go do it? Is it just like going for a shopping spree and take them out and put them in there? Pretty much. If you want to come and preserve your fertility and freeze your eggs, you are able to do that. There's no legislation to stop you. However, it is not covered by Medicare. Cool. Okay. So you're paying fully out of pocket. Fully out of pocket. Even if you have any sort of issue... Like if you've got a PCOS or anything like that? If you've got a fertility diagnosis, then um, it can be covered by, by Medicare. So yeah. some of your treatment is subsidised. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, if you could shoot through, you know, to 15 or 10 years' time, what would that the ideal legislation look like or what are some of the things that you would love to see passed if you're still working in this industry or if you're still alive, if you're looking at, you know, long time, what would you love to see? Oh, goodness. That's a really good Wish question. list. Mm. Oh, I'd, can we come back to yeah, that? Have a think because yeah. I just would love to see how the fertility. Because I just feel like either more people are talking about it or it's happening more frequently. So this is going to be on the table for years yeah. to come. So what does the fertility future look like in terms of laws and, and stuff? So let's we'll, we'll come yeah. back there. Um, now let's talk about I guess yeah, risk management and and natural disasters, cyclones, mm. fires. I mean, how does this impact cycles and, you know, why are we talking about this? Um, disaster management is actually something that the Reproductive Technology Accreditation Committee require um, all clinics to consider. Um, so we've recently undertaken our annual disaster management audit and we, 
actually work through um, scenarios. So this year we looked at data breaches, we looked at a severe weather event, we looked at um, a massive liquid nitrogen spill and, remind me Sarah, what was the fourth one? Oh, it was a, a, someone having a heart attack in, ah, in okay. the clinic. Yep. Uh, so, and we worked through with about 40 of our team, which I think is about 90% of the staff here, worked through all of the existing protocols that we've got in place um, to, in regards to how we approach each of those events. And we picked holes in it um, and filled those gaps. Um, so can you, um, I guess, <coughs> can you feel rest assured as a patient if, cyclone comes through here or whatever that your little embryos are they are they in a big big tin like how we we have a plan yeah so (laughs) in terms of sort of uh, ongoing monitoring and so on in the laboratory at Fertility North we've got a continuous monitoring system so that all of our critical equipment uh, incubators that have got embryos in them um, and all of our storage tanks that contain the eggs the sperm and the embryos that have been frozen over the years they've all got um, a temperature probe um, and hardwire alarms on them so if the power goes out we know about it straight away if the temperature dro- uh, well rises in a tank rather than drops or the nitrogen level drops we know about it straight away um, so we have an embryologist on call 24 hours a day seven days a week to respond immediately if we get an alert to anything like that happening uh, and we test that system on a regular basis as well to make sure that we're getting the alerts that we should be getting. So if the fridge goes off, you know, and they, won't, they won't thaw out, no. you can get there in time to yep. back it up. Yep. yep. Well, that's good to know. And we have spare tanks so that if one tank does fail, then we've got another tank there sitting ready to transfer everything across straight away. We have contingencies in terms of having excess liquid nitrogen on site so that if we need to top tanks up, we can do that. Um, and we have uh, service level agreements with all of our providers to ensure that we have an uninterrupted supply of all of the things that we need. What if the uh, touch wood, touch my head, if the building sets on fire, can can your embryos survive? Are they in a are they in a fireproof? So the clinic is behind fire doors. Uh, so before you actually get to our front glass doors, before that there's fire doors. Um, in terms of the tanks, they're then behind another set of or two sets of doors and a wall yeah um so it's a lot there's a lot there's, yeah they're in a safe space yeah yes as yeah. safe as we can possibly make yeah it. how how much can a, an embryo or any, any gamete sort of handle like if you knock over something how delicate are they they can't be knocked over i'm just trying to think no you so can't th- run into a tank and oh, you know. i could it would hurt me yeah more than do anything to the tank um so the tanks are 35 litre um, capacity, so they hold 35 litres of liquid nitrogen um, and they're a double-walled stainless steel, medical-grade stainless steel vessel, um, big, fat and stocky. Um, so they're quite short. They're not going to be easily knocked over. Um, and we're in and out of the tanks on a regular basis, so we're constantly working with them and can see there's there's things that the tanks will display if there's any sign of, of the integrity being compromised. They'll get um, uh, condensation and so on on the outside or ice building up. So we can just, in a daily basis, we're constantly auditing the integrity of our storage vessels. And heaven forbid uh, you lose all your data. We've got backups, you know. Yep. I mean, Yes. I'm old school. I like to just print labels out and put things on there. I'm not a massive fan of, of computers yeah. all the time. Is your, what's your system like? You know, like are we all on the computer with 
is it on the cloud, you know? <laughs> we we are we do run on a cloud based system and this is one of the scenarios that we ran through recently with our IT contractor. Um, and they've then gone on and done an audit to confirm that they're happy with the systems that they've got in place. Um, so I'll let Sarah talk yeah, about tell it. Me. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I mean, it's been in the media so much with big companies being hacked that it's been in the forefront of our mind to make sure the data we store, which is pretty sensitive data, is secure and we're happy with the, the level of security that we have around that. And we also see in the media just the odd occasion where someone's put the wrong thing in someone and they're carrying someone else's child. Impossible to happen? Like, how does that happen, first of all? And what sort of things do you have in place for for mix-ups? Not impossible at all because we're we're people. Humans are are working this system and and human error is... um, I wouldn't say unavoidable, but it's always a, it's always a possibility. So we put as many measures in place as possible to prevent that from happening. Um, I think most embryologists, when they start their career, will be given an article or two about a mix-up. Um, so we do have an informal policy of, if in doubt, chuck it out. Um, so if you go to a workspace and there's already pipette on, um, you chuck it out. You don't want to be cross-contaminating pipettes. Um, we go through a strict identification process when we first bring a patient in. So we're looking at three unique identifiers, their name, their date of birth, their phone number, their partner's name, their suburb, anything like that. Three things that are unique to that person that we can use to identify them. Uh, we also employ an electronic witnessing system as well here at Fertility North. So everything that belongs to a patient or a couple is coded with an RFID tag. Okay. Um, so we and then we have readers in each of our workstations. So if two patients, two different patients, things come into that same workspace, it does a big audible alarm. It flashes red and prevents any mix-up from happening. And as a belt and braces approach. Uh, we also employ uh, manual witnessing on top of that for really critical steps. So when you're first putting, um, attaching the ID to a sperm pot or if you're putting eggs and sperm together, we confirm manually and electronically that those two things should be going together before they go together. So that is that the most, is that the key important part where you need someone looking over the shoulder just to, to double check? Is that the time when if there is going to be a mix up, that's when we need... Another set of eyes? Yeah, and also when we're moving embryos into a transfer dish, we'll get a second pair of eyes as well because you're taking Mrs Smith's embryos from her culture dish to Mrs Smith's um, embryo transfer dish. You want another pair of eyes to confirm, yes, that's Mrs Smith, that's Mrs Smith, those dates of birth and file numbers correspond, yes, it's okay. We'll also then check that we're moving two embryos because that person's having two embryos replaced. Those, yep. those extra checks are done at that point as well. Wow, you've really got to be across everything, hey? Yeah. Like, obviously, but it's more than just um, a science. It's, it's, it's data and it's, it's actually it's numbers and, and cross-checking and double-checking. and It takes a certain personality type to be an embryologist, I think. Um, you need to be a little bit OCD. Yeah, <laughs> I love those people, but yeah. yes. I, look, I like matching coat hangers and CDs in alphabetical <laughs> order. So. <laughs> so patients call up or do you ever get often questions, um, are you sure you've got the right one? You know, What sort of questions people ask you about that? Exactly that. How, you know, can you confirm, can you show me? 
And so we'll happily print out um, reports from our electronic witnessing system if patients have any concerns uh, so that we can we can provide them with physical evidence of who's done the checks, when the checks have happened, and that there's not been any misma- mismatches. Um, one of our team also presented um, at a recent um, scientific conference in Hobart about the incidence of um, mismatches and genuine mismatches and the actual incidence of a genuine mismatch where you literally did have the two, two uh, different patients in the same workspace at the, at the same time is very, very low because we've got such strict protocols. Mm. Um, as Sarah said, you know, our, the laboratory protocols in particular are really uh, comprehensive. Um, Even at egg collection then, are, you, are these little ID numbers, is that, is that mean right then and there? Yeah. And, and as an embryologist babysitting the, the eggs in theatre the yeah. whole time? Yep. Yeah, we don't leave. Don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> no. Just checking. Yeah. Because it's patient after patient after patient. I'm mm. wondering, have you got mine? Have you given me my ID? And you've whacked it in the little mm. tin. They're labelled. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, and that, that process is also, and there's another manual witness in there. So the doctor actually checks that. So when a patient's in theatre, we will verbally confirm your details. Once you've been anaesthetised, mm. we will then confirm your details again on your ankle or your wristbands and the theatre staff will do a timeout so that information is all confirmed then. We're complete, we are repeating your name throughout the procedure. So that's the first egg for Cass. Cass mm-hmm. has now got three eggs. Cass has got five eggs. Um, and at the end of the procedure, before we move the eggs from your collection dish into the transport tube to bring them from theatre to the laboratory, then the doctor will check those tubes to make sure that the ID on those tubes matches the ID on the paperwork and the ID on the patient. They'll sign off on that. We then bring the tubes back to the laboratory um, and those tubes then get moved from that that tube that's physically labelled mm. with your details but also electronically labelled with your details and transfer it over to a culture dish which is also right. labelled twice with all of your information. So you're out loud counting how many eggs you collect, how much you're removing from the fluid in theatre. Oh, yeah. yeah. yes. What's yeah, the doctor doing? Is he, are they handing you things? The doctor doesn't. So there's um, in the theatre itself you'll have in our, the way that we operate downstairs is that there is um, a scrub nurse who and a scout nurse. So the scout nurse can be transporting the tubes between the scrub nurse, who's mm-hmm. actually collecting the, helping the doctor collect the fluid, mm-hmm. and the scrub nurse will then pass it quickly to us, keeping them warm, um, making sure that they're not dropped on the way, um, and getting to the, them to us quickly. And we have to feed back to the doctor what we're seeing because if the eggs aren't coming out, they may need to flush the follicle to gotcha. get so the egg out. So it's happening simultaneously. Yeah. It's not like they're you know putting my legs back together and waking me up. No. It's happening at the same yeah. time. Yeah. You're like one egg, two yeah. egg, and they're still in there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, and if we're not getting eggs, we're saying if we're seeing other cells that you would expect to see from within the follicle, granulosa cells and cumulus cells as well. This is so interesting. Who calls like, all right, I got enough now. Does the doctor just keep draining follicles? We go until they're all all drained. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You don't go, oh, I've got 20 good ones. Stop now. That's fine. <laughs> Sometimes we wish. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. Especially uh, when you've got an ICSI to do when you get back to the lab. And you've got 53 eggs to inject. But no, look, we will do our very best with, with everything we've got, regardless of whether a patient gets one egg or if they get... Mm. Multiple, multiple eggs. So. Look, this is just a random question. Sperm collection, how do we make sure that the man who's 
donating the sperm, it's his sperm, can he just bring someone else's in? Or what if he's bringing a mate's in or something? How do we know if we don't? Really good question. We're not <laughs> going no to cameras in no, there. There's no cameras no. and we're not going to accompany a patient in um, whilst they're producing the sample to make mm. sure that it's theirs and they haven't hidden one in their pocket. So there is an element of the, the onus of responsibility ultimately is on, is on the patient. Um, we confirm their ID when they've produced the sample. So they have to write their name and their date of birth. On the semen pot, they have to complete the collection form and then we ask them to verbally confirm using those three unique identifiers as well that they are who they say they are and they have to sign a declaration to verify that it is their sample. Okay. And, and if they've had a sample collected just for testing, then they've had a collection. Mm-hmm. You're comparing that they're both the same DNA, same, same person? No, we're yeah. not testing the actual DNA oh, of the sperm so at that point. Interesting. Yeah. There has to be an element of trust that they're being honest with us. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't, but I'm just just throwing a spanner in there that they've brought a brown paper bag with someone Mm -hmm. else's in there. Mm -hmm. It could happen. Um, And unless we were to have cameras in the collection room and all physically Some people like that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have been asked to help before. (laughs) We had a listener that that got wheeled into um, that, that room after collection because he needed needed a bit of help. Oh, so she was in her yeah. wheelchair. Yeah, on. that does happen. Yeah, yeah. And look, sometimes Oops. the pressure on the day is enough to put you off your game plan. Um, and you know, you've you're in a really sterile clinical environment, and you've got all these people carrying on with their work day around you. So you can hear the chat in the clinic around around the collection room. So. You know, we're really mindful of that. And if, if patients do experience difficulties um, in producing a sample on, on demand on the day, it's not something we haven't seen before. It's not something that we're not going to continue to see going forward. Um, and we will deal with it and accommodate it as we need to. What are your rules for that? No saliva? What's the... Yeah. yeah. No saliva, no lube. No lubricants, yeah. Um, it's all about quality control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, you can tell if a sample has been produced... Um, either by withdrawal or methods that aren't approved mm-hmm. uh, because you can there's microscopic evidence um, actually in the sample. So can't be used? Sometimes no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So when you say withdrawal, it, there's been penetration, we've pulled out and we've... Mm. Yeah. And then, yeah, into the... Pardon, pardon my very casual <laughs> nature of this, <laughs> just to, for okay. people. No, um, this good. is all part of it. Yeah. So I, I find it's, I find it's interesting. It's what we do. So we, we're used to talking about masturbation and ejaculation yeah. and vaginas and... Because people yeah. have all different things that turn them on. So it, yeah. it would be hard to come into a room and be like, I need yeah. to do this the most clinical, sterile way possible. Yeah. yeah. It's not really sexy. And just... Yeah. Not no. at all. Yeah. No. No. Okay. Well, yeah. So I don't good. want to start putting the fear into people. So and, good. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, my husband makes a joke that he's like, how, how quick's too quick and how long's too long? You know, like, it's, it's hilarious. Um, let's talk about people who call who just want to know, um, you know, I guess cycle management, you know, who's on call all the time. If something happens on a Sunday, if the public holiday, um, I can't have my transfer then because it's Christmas Day, you know, oh. calendars, all that sort of stuff comes into, into play. Yep. How's all that managed? From the lab's perspective, we've got someone on call 24-7. So we've got a phone that's uh, linked up to our continuous monitoring system. 
um, and the hospital have access to that number. If they come across anything, um, it's posted throughout the clinic. So if the cleaners or security come across anything that's of a concern, they can contact their lab on call phone. Um, from a patient's perspective, there's always a Fertility North doctor on call. Uh, so our setup is that in the case of an emergency, they contact the hospital. The hospital will then contact the on-call doctor and the process will go from there. Are you guys seven days a week collecting and transferring? Uh, we are collecting on set operation days. Okay. Uh, we do embryo transfers Monday to Saturday mm-hmm. uh, and embryology runs seven days a week. So is it hard to match people up with how they're responding with those dates? No. It's all right? You, it's no, the doctors manageable. are pretty good at managing people's cycles and when collections and stuff need to be. Yep. Yep. Because that would be yeah, something that would – public holidays, all that sort of stuff as well. Because a day before or a day after can be the difference between, you know, ovulating or – or not. Yeah, and so there's, there is a lot of thought and, and contingency planning that goes into things like the Easter weekend that's just gone. Um, so we, we couldn't operate on Good Friday, so we had um, Saturday we had an operative list running. Mm. Um, uh, we have for public holidays, it's not as easy to get um, your blood collection done, so we have arrangements with Clinipath to ensure that they've got a dedicated centre open for our patients so that they can still get their blood tests done when everyone else is on holiday. Okay. Is, and is there anything set that we like um, if, if, we're, if we're on the pill and we're training, planning for an FET or whatever, we'd like us to start on a Monday or Tuesday? Like, can you ever be that organised or we just have to go with the flow in terms of what you'd prefer cycles to start at? Because I remember that it was, if you can aim for Monday or Tuesday, that's great. That works good for us or, you know what I mean, is there... No. Oh, that's wishful thinking. We will work with our patient Whatever. cycles. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, general risks in terms of just explaining to people hyperstimulation, let's start with that one first of all. Um, and we're going to go through cancelled cycles, ectopic, that sort of thing. Mm. I feel like hyperstimulation doesn't really get a big pamphlet given to you if you're at risk at the beginning and you know about it when it happens. Mm. Is it something that you address with patients from the get-go if they are at risk? Our doctors, it it forms part of the standard uh, IVF consultation. So if a patient is planning to do IVF, with their do- if they're going through that planning process with the doctor, then it is, it is a risk um, for, for all patients, but particularly those who are more prone to with their polycystic ovaries. Um, they have a really high AMH. The patients who fall into a higher risk category will probably get more information on it. Uh, so it's also consented to, so our nurses will, again, reiterate that conversation when they go through the consenting process with patients. And as you're going through your cycle, it becomes fairly apparent fairly quickly mm. um, if you are starting to over-respond to medication. So we can do what we can to adjust your medication or the stimulation that you're on. Uh, if you're at an increased risk, we can adjust the uh trigger medication that you're given to reduce your risk of of hyperstimulation your embryo transfer might be cancelled because if you get pregnant Mm. in those cycles you're much more inclined to sort of your ovaries to blow out of the water Um, and there are some instances where OHS is unavoidable and then those cases are managed and they now have to be reported as well so it's it's reportable adverse event for patients who suffer from moderate to severe hyperstimulation. Yeah. So we have to report to RTAC and we have to report to the RTC, which is the WA regulators. Um, and that's a lot of paperwork. So if we can avoid that, that's good. 
And, yeah. and is it measured on like mild, severe? Like yes. yeah. yeah, there's strict definitions for how you fit into each category and yeah, anybody that's hospitalised for more than 24 hours post a TBOA is reportable. Wow. Yeah. And then something must be done if they have another collection, like adjusting protocol. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Does a clinic get, not a big cross, but is it on the clinic sort of? It's on your records. Okay. And if you have those, so there are, um, ANZARD is um, a database that is a collection of uh, all of the fertility clinics in Australia's data. And there is a benchmark. And if you exceed that benchmark in terms of your incidence of ovarian hyperstimulation, then questions will be asked. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, there is a, a question that many people have asked me as well who haven't experienced hyperstimulation. I have. What's it, what's it worth? But you might get 25 eggs, so I'm willing to go through that. How do you explain to a patient that that risk is not worth the reward of a high egg collection? Look, it's a really individual thing. Um, what will constitute hyperstimulation for one person may not for someone else. Because uh, I'll tell you, like, I was all about, you no, know, keep with the overdrill. No, yep. no, 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 I don't care. Let's, let's go. Let's get 29. I've got 29 out. Mm. Stick with that. We're going back and forth. Change trigger. All right, we're doing it. So sick. Mm. Worst, worst part of IVF for me. Yeah. It can kill you. Yes. yes. It's yes. very, very dangerous and I don't think people realise how dangerous it can be. I mean, you can be having drains put in, draining yep. litres and litres of fluid out of your abdomen. You don't want to be there. No. Just it's because you want to get 25 eggs in yeah. the freezer. In yeah. its worst case, it can put strain on your heart. Yes. Um, and, you know, your, your blood becomes thicker and more concentrated because you're leaking all of this fluid mm. into your peritoneal cavity. So it's... I've never gone to sleep for egg collection going, please get less than 15, please get less than 15, no, ever. And, no. that, and that's not really the mindset that a lot of people have unless you've kind of felt that. Mm. And you... D- no. Everyone has... The, there is this idea that the more I get, the better. Yeah. But there is a fine line where you cross over that division between quality and quantity and we would pick quality over quantity any day. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Um, handling needy patients, I'm not going to say the word is needy, but you know, you, you'd get a lot of calls. Have you ever had someone that's called you four times in a day? You know, yeah. um, and at what point does a patient need to take a little bit of ownership and just sort of go, "All right, that's sort of all the education I can have." You know, that, that you're not a counsellor all the time. You know, because yeah. I would call and I go, "I feel really bad," but can you just can I talk to you about this or, you know, so... Look, I had a conversation with a patient this morning who said, do you have time to talk? Yep. And wherever possible, I'll absolutely make time to talk because that's part of my job um, is to support patients through their journey. It's when the demands on you start to impact on your ability to give that care to other patients as well. Right. Um, so as part of our induction process for patients, I suppose we do have a patient rights and responsibilities form and on that form is a definition of, you know, we will give you the best care that we can, um, at, but this is how you have to enable us to do that. Um, and you would have to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, hey, listen, you've had a lot of my time today. I'm really sorry. Maybe put more questions in an email and we can address them that way or, um, you know, we'll have to come back to you another time. I do have to, to get to these other patients now. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we've um, brought on an additional counsellor here at Fertility North as well that she tries as much as she can to touch base with patients, especially after embryo transfer 
or after a negative preg test just to make sure people are getting the support they need. Mm. And it, I want to go through some more general risks with you. Um, not thawing, and I've had that happen, embryo not thawing and then another one not thawing. Um, how is there any sort of conversations that are happening before transfer time that this is a possibility? What is the percentage of chance of this happening? Do we know? Embryo vitrification is predominantly used these days. Um, it's a really rapid freezing technique and it's quite robust. Um, so you'd be looking at generally a 90 to 95% survival rate with um, vitrified embryos. Fail thaws do happen. It's always a really difficult conversation to have. Um, before at Fertility North, before we thaw your embryos, we will the lab will call a patient. They'll confirm the trigger details. They'll confirm your consent and instructions in regards to how many embryos you want to thaw. If there's more than one available, if you want us to continue thawing or talk you through the process as we're going. Um, because you're not guaranteed until you get that call that we've we've thawed. Mm. We've, some people are already packing their socks and we're good to go. And yeah, unless you get the phone call saying yeah, we've thawed beautifully, we'll see you at nine o'clock. Yeah. It's not set in stone. No, and look, the, if not to scare people, but as someone who's lost two in mm. two hours, yeah, I yeah. you think that ninety five percent is oh I'm golden. Yeah, I've got that. Oh, save save the last one, you know. Mm. And conversations around oh it's looking okay. It's actually oh it's it's coming back. Mm. It's hard to understand that. Is it, would it have worked if I'd put it in there, or if one hasn't survived thawing, do we just suggest that it wouldn't have worked anyway? You know. It's fairly clear from the minute you get an embryo out of its storage device as to whether or not it's viable or not. Um, the non-viable embryos tend to look a little bit sultanery. They're right. shriveled and they're brown. Um, there are other measures of embryo survival, but there is less of a consensus uh, as to the validity of those. Um, but again, if there's... If we're not seeing exactly what we want to see, we'll have that conversation with you mm. um, and discuss whether or not you want to. Ultimately, we don't want to transfer a non-viable pregnancy because for selfish reasons that's going to impact on our success rates and we like being able to boast about having good success rates. Um, but we also don't want to put you through a transfer procedure with a non-viable embryo. Why would you put someone through a two-week wait knowing that they're going to have a negative pregnancy test? Yep. Um, so we sort of look at it from that perspective. Likewise, we don't want to throw away a viable embryo as well. Um, so we will collaborate within the lab. If there's any uncertainty, we'll get other team members in to have a look. Um, if it needs another day. Like, yeah. Because I've seen sometimes they go, oh, let's just get we'll it to culture day six it overnight. we'll have a yep. look, let yep. you know in the morning. Yep. That's a long wait. Yes. Yeah. There's that feels as on. long as your two-week wait, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. How do you guarantee or, or kind of reassure um, patients we're in your corner, we're doing everything, we want to transfer this? Because sometimes you can feel like uh, that a disconnect. You're just the scientist. You don't understand how I feel, you know? I, I say exactly that, um, that, you know, your success is our success and we're doing our absolute best to ensure that, that you walk away from here successful. That's We want nothing more than that. Mm. Um, and I think there is a conception that IVF is this big money-making business and we're just going to churn cycles through and rip people off. 
But the people who are actually working at the coalface, we don't do this for the money. We do this for the love of what we do. Mm. And uh, being able to see the joy that you can bring to a patient's life when they come back in with their baby, there's nothing quite like it. Mm. It's, yeah, goosebumpy. We love to get the emails, this is the baby, this is when it was born. and Yeah, yeah, yeah the best. Yeah, absolutely. So a failed thought would be a cancelled transfer and there's also cancelled cycles that happen which can also be quite heartbreaking for people if you're under responding or over responding um sometimes there's people thinking about the money as mm. well you know or must still have to pay for x y and z are there anything that you can share with me around cancelled cycles in terms of managing those and patients expectations what works how does that all work um it's cancelling a cycle isn't a decision that's that's done made lightly. lightly. Yeah, yeah, um, and it will be done in conjunction with the patient. So some patients will still want to go to theatre or have an egg collection with only one follicle. They're counselled on the risks of a failed collection, um, and they're also counselled on the financial implications of that as well. Um, likewise, if it's a medically advised cancellation, if you're going to hyperstimulate and it's just not worth the risk to your health and wellbeing, then again you'll be counselled on the risks and benefits while you're being advised to cancel and, again, the financial implications will be discussed with you as well. Is that the doctor's decision, that, say it's the hyperstimulation risk, is it their final decision that they make the call or can I be? Can I advocate for myself, no, put me to sleep and get them out? Um, you know, Good luck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there would be some instances where it would be sort of potentially no. considered medical negligence to go ahead with an egg collection yep. if okay. you're at severe risk of, of hyperstim. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. We were talking about um, consenting and witnessing and things like that and it's just popped in my head, uh, separation or divorce, um, partners changing partners and wanting to use embryos and things like that because um, people are changing and growing and yeah, meeting question. new people. So yeah. what's the rules around you can't use my stuff, you know, I'm – or can I have can I have one of our embryos? I'm now gay. You yeah. Know? No, there's really a, no. really strict rules yeah. and regulations about all of that. Um, yeah. Okay. yeah. Basically, to use an embryo that we have in storage requires the consent of both parties who created that embryo. And if there's a divorce or a separation, and you're not going to get consent for what if one dies? If one dies, that's a different story. Okay. If it's gametes, then currently our legislation prohibits the use of gametes after the gamete provider has passed away. Um, However, when it comes to embryos, the rights for the use of that embryo passes to the surviving member of that couple. So if you have a wife survived, then she could go ahead, obviously, after there's been counselling and all other sorts of considerations, but there is nothing to stop her carrying on using those embryos if she wants to. Yeah, because over in over east, Elodie Paul and's partner, he she uh, he passed away tragically, extracted the sperm twenty four hours later. Like, is this is this common? Can, like, because I was there going, parent, who signs off on that? Sure, take my son's sperm, let's make a baby while it's still fresh. And how long have you got to do that? Order. It has happened it's in Western happened. Australia before. Um, it doesn't happen often. Um, it certainly hasn't happened, to my knowledge, in the last ten years. No. Um, if, my, if my husband passes away and I've got embryos in storage, I can continue to have transfers without him here. Yes, yes. you can. His intent to to parent with you is evident. Hasn't changed. Yeah. 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 Interesting. 
but if my partner, if my husband decides to be gay and wants to use my embryos because it's half his, no, no, and I can't sign off on that. If I do counselling, or if you if, if you, you consent to it, then he can. Yeah, same rules apply. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Gotcha. Wow, that's um, there's a lot. There's a lot to navigate. Um, in terms of ectopic pregnancies, multiple pregnancies, twins, all that sort of stuff that's happening. Um, how do we discuss those with patients and what sort of protocols are in place for, for that conversation? Well, we have a pretty strict single embryo transfer policy because we don't want to create multiple pregnancies. The risk to mums and babies is, is high. Um, Where so did that come from, like that twins is not ideal? Like it, it's not it's – not, um, I'm not saying it's not ideal, but I'm just saying why don't we encourage – you know what I mean, the we, word I'm trying to use? The maternal and neonatal risks with a multiple pregnancy are increased. So you've got an increased risk of um, preterm delivery, low birth weight, developmental delays, mm-hmm. the list goes on. Okay. So um, where possible, we restrict patients to a single embryo transfer to minimise the risk of, of multiple pregnancy. I mean, you can still get twins with a single transfer. Yeah. So imagine you're putting two or three or four back, you could end up with many multiple babies and that's yeah, not something that's worth the risk for mums and babies. Single embryo transfer, it splits, we've got identical twins, it happens. Is it, a, is it a myth that people have this idea that, oh, you must have had IVF, that's why you've got twins? Does it happen more frequently with IVF transfers? Or is that only the idea of you putting two in? I think that's it's that's more from. to do with the idea that traditionally in WA we were putting two, three or four embryos mm. back at a time um, and it's probably only in the last 15 years or so that we've brought that back to a single embryo transfer policy and that was a nationwide push from RTAC because IVF was associated with a, with an increased number of high-order multiple pregnancies. So Because if you're only putting one back in... You're just the same as any normal fertile person anyway. The, the chances of it splitting are the same, correct? Exactly. Like it's not – you're not more – with an IVF five-day embryo, is it more likely? To the best of my knowledge, no. No. Yeah, no. Same. Okay. I don't actually know if there's been any study done. If you want single embryo transfer. I'll come no. back to you yeah. on that one. Ectopic pregnancies, are they rare? They are. So with ectopic pregnancies, we, there, it, is a, it is a benchmark indicator that we look at and we need to ensure that we're not getting too many ectopic pregnancies because that can be a reflection of an embryo transfer technique that needs to be refined. Um, so we benchmark our results um, against the ANZAR data as well to ensure that we're not getting too many ectopic pregnancies. Mm. Um, and it's also reviewed by doctor as well. So we look at this one particular doctor getting a, an increased rate of, of ectopics um, and then we can address it um, at, a, at a technical level. Yeah, because unfortunately is you have a greater risk of ectopic pregnancy when you're undergoing IVF than you would conceiving naturally. So the way I feel is that I feel like it would be more frequent in like an IUI because the egg has to come down or when you have a transfer... I feel like it's just finding a nice little wall. It's not going to go up any further, but it, it, you know what I mean? It like, shouldn't, but it, they, it, they so it just, can. just it floats can. on up, back up the tube where it used to live. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So it happens in IVF just as much as IUIs naturally. Yep. And Interesting. Because mm. I always thought that he's in there, Catherine, he's finding a nice little hole in the uterus. Yep, yep in yeah, the go. Yeah. Floats on up. Interesting. And then we're talking about losing tubes and, and all that sort of stuff that comes with that. Mm. 
Because when it comes to writing a patient up for an IVF cycle, they will go through all the risks. So your ovarian hyperstimulation, your ectopic um, and so on. And if you do get pregnant at the end of your IVF cycle, your hormone levels, the way that they're behaving, can be indicative of an ectopic. So we know then to warn patients of what exactly they need to look out for uh, and then how to manage it if, if they are at a risk of that. Um, and then we can look to bring ultrasounds forward to confirm that a pregnancy is in the uterus and not in the tube. Okay. Do you have conversations with patients around um, or rules around you can go back to back or you have to have a month off after a miscarriage or whenever there's, yeah, I guess time time or gaps between cycles? There, there are rules, yes, um, not set in stone, stone per se, mm-hmm. um, because they will be addressed on a case-by-case basis, um, where there are some t- cycle types that we can afford to do back-to-back without any risk to the patient, where there are other instances where you do need to take a break to allow your ovaries to recover, to allow your body to recover, to allow you uh, to recover from the procedure emotionally as well. I was going to ask, do you ever have the counsellor come to you and say, I don't think Cassie's coping. Can we can we disencourage a next cycle back to back? Do they have that sort of? Can they have that conversation with you? Because their mental health is a big one. And if I'm there saying no, I want to do another cycle. Let's go. I'm bleeding. Let's go. Mm. Is there that, that your little team having a chat about whether it's a good idea or not? If the counsellor has concerns, then they would definitely feed that back to the patient's doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately, though, the decision to proceed with treatment or not is a discussion to be had between the doctor and the patient. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I'm going back to that question earlier. (laughs) Let's think about the future. Uh, What does the fertility world look like in terms of restrictions and what we're allowed and what we're not allowed to do? What would be ideal for you? How would you love to see the, the, I was not saying the industry, but it is, Hmm. grow? There's also some risks as well. We don't want anyone – I don't want anyone just to be able to do X, Y and Z. There needs mm. to be control. So maybe we can try and find something that is a restriction we'd love to keep or and then maybe something we'd love to um, to remove or, or see. So either or, you can answer that. I'm sorry, I'm giving you the hard questions no, now. That, but, no, you know. I, I think we certainly need to catch up with uh, society in terms of – the acceptance of fertility treatment, the availability of fertility treatment to be equitable as well. Um, society now is much more accepting of single parenthood and same-sex couples, so we need to ensure that the legislation is keeping up with that um, and so that we can treat patients without fear of sort of legislative retribution, mm. I suppose. Um, the whole 12-month you have to try for 12 months is just an in-house clinic rule. That's not a legislative thing, is it? It's not legislated. Well, it's legislated that to, in order to have IVF treatment, you have to be medically infertile. And that's and 12 months of trying without success. That's kind of the benchmark that's used. Yes, we've been actively trying for 12 months and nothing's happening. See, I'd love that to change. Mm. But I know you're going to have people flooded in here and coming in, but... Uh, actively trying and trying are very different than when you, you know, from the wedding day, okay, we're on now. I feel like, oh, I don't know, I don't know how to say this, but that you've got to be over 35, tried for, for 12 months, have at least PCOS. There's, it's hard to get, to get one of to them. To tick all the boxes, yeah. yeah. Look, I think 
there is certainly room for more flexibility because if you know you've got a family history where conception has been difficult or you know you've got a condition that is going to make natural conception more challenging, then in those instances there is... I don't know if people are aware of it, but there is flexibility in the 12-month rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you're an older woman, then that 12 months then shrinks to, to six months. But again, if you've got um, other factors that would be influencing your fertility, then it, there is some flexibility. It's not a hard and fast rule. And Sarah, for you, was there anything that you would love to see happen or change or be brought in? More regular review of the legislation. Mm. I mean, it's sat stagnant for so long that it's now fallen way behind where it should be. So commitment from government to review every five years, I mean, yeah, that would be nice to see. Who does it well? Not well, but who's the most loosey-goosey or the most um, progressive around the world? (sighs) Or even in Australia, is there a state that is... I mean, there's lots of states that don't have legislation that governs IVF at all. Mm. Um, so they rely on RTAC regulations, like the code of practice that we have. They don't actually have any laws. Mm. So, yeah, there's some states that, yeah. I think that's probably one of the things that I would like to see is more consistency on a national level um, so that there isn't confusion as to what applies in Victoria yeah. compared to yeah. what applies in WA or Queensland or South Australia and so on. Um, the UK has had the HFEA, which is the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. They've been around for a considerable period of time. So their rules and regulations um, are, are quite um, solid and, um, I suppose, research-based and, uh, and experience-based as well. Um, there's also the EU Cells and Tissues Directive that has an influence on what you can and can't do in the UK and Europe. But then across Europe, things that you can do in what, from one country to the next are very, very different as well. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I think we can all agree that fertility treatment is something that will be staying mm. and growing and it's, uh, it's going to be a conversation we're having more and more. And it's great to see... It's in the news every day or it's in the paper, which I, d- I just love. And there are some things that I'm... Last night the project had the BMI, you know, the BMI oh, thing on you can't have fertility treatment if you're over a certain BMI and I think I think BMI is outdated, not that it's a regulation but, you know, it's a rule. Well, we do it? have an obligation. We can't treat patients. We're not allowed to. It's not safe to treat patients over a certain BMI. But I also agree with you, the measure of the BMI needs to... We need to come up with something that's more appropriate. Yeah. It, it was designed around um, you know, 20-year-old Swedish men or something ridiculous. So, um, But there's no one in this room who looks like a 20-year-old yeah. Swedish man. So I think the same could be safe to say. you know, Just, just updating things like that. Because mm. yeah. there are ways that we could... I just think the BMI, it's just, yeah, it's just outdated. There are ways to look at someone and go, you know, I'm yeah. actually deemed, I think it's extremely underweight, underweight. or something like yeah. that, you know. Um, yeah, what's fit is, mm. is, is interesting. Yep. Um, so I guess some parting words for listeners in terms of whether it's risk management or, or what, how you're in their corner or, or trust the process. Are there any sort of um, parting words or mic drop moments you can leave with people? <laughs> because it's, it is hard to think, you know, sometimes I ring and I'd go, have you even looked at my file? Like how did you mix that up or 
why are you giving me a scan talking about collecting when I'm actually having a transfer? And sometimes it's hard to get, you know, you feel like a number. Yeah. But you need to be a number as well because yeah. that's the data. Yeah. So it's a juggling act. It, and it's a really, it really is a juggling act at our end because we do our very, very best to treat everyone as individuals and we'll always endeavour to read your file before we talk to you. But there are times when the day is exceptionally busy or there's something else going on um, and, and it isn't a, a reflection on your value as a patient or um, a, a reflection of a lower level of interest in getting you pregnant. I, I think rest assured that everyone's doing their best for you um, at the time. Mm. At the end of the day, we want what you want. We want you to leave here pregnant, have a successful pregnancy and bouncing baby at the end of the day. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for jumping on, both of you. Uh, we went everywhere with that. that was, we did. <laughs> I still get educated. That's the thing. I just I just, I absolutely love the topic. So, um, yeah, listeners know that the people behind the scenes are very busy. They're, they're, they're writing paperwork, labelling, collecting, doing all sorts of stuff. So... Um, thanks so much for both of you. Get back to work. Thank you. For <laughs> thanks, <having us>. Cassie. <laughs>